Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at JackieService across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. This one's special for me because it's a friend who I have known for multiple years, but is also somebody that's local to my hometown and is five minutes from my front door. So it's not every day that I get to interview somebody who is local and somebody who I am so inspired by and just want to pick your brain and have a beautiful conversation today about your brand new book. Catherine Martinko, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. It's great to be here. I'm so excited about this one. I have just got my copy about two weeks ago. I've already read this this book from front to cover or from the cover to the end called Childhood Unplugged, Practical Advice to Get Kids Off Screens and Find Balance. I'm excited to talk to you about this book and understand a little bit more about your story and how this book came to be. Sure. I'm excited to talk about it too. Beautiful. Well, why don't we start anytime I do a podcast, I always love to do a little bit of rapid fire question. It just gets the audience to know you a little bit better, gets me to know you a little bit better, some things I maybe didn't know about you, and then we can dive into your story. Sure. Cool. So where are you from? Where were you born and raised? I was born in Dorset, Ontario, which is um, up in Muskoka. Um, It's considered Ontario's cottage country. It is stunning. I have been maybe once or twice and in, in, in multiple locations near it. And it is it just, it, it in itself feels off the grid in a lot of ways. It does. It's a very special place to grow up. And I certainly think that it has profoundly influenced my parenting philosophy. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to pull that string a little bit. Cause I was curious to see how much of that actually did impact the reason why we're, we're writing this book. All right. I know the answer, but why don't we tell the people, where do you live now? So now I live in Port Elgin, Ontario, um, which is on the edge of Lake Huron in southwestern Ontario. Um, I moved here 
14 years ago, I guess it was for my husband's job. Um, before that, I'd been in Toronto for five years, um, going to university before that, uh, living abroad in a few different countries and continents and generally roaming the world. So I never thought that I would settle down in one place, especially in Canada, but here I am. And um, it has really grown on me and I love it now. I love that. Yeah. You and I both, it was never in the big picture of actually being here. This was my cottage town. So I grew up in Kitchener Waterloo area. And then this was where I summered my entire life. And once I started a corporate career, it was like, a, it was a luxury to get back for a weekend here and there over the years, but I never spent much time back in Southampton, Port Elgin area, and never was it on our, our plan to come back and live here. But life always takes toasts and turns and we're feeling the same way. Like we're really finding ourselves anchoring in now and enjoying all that this beautiful community has to offer. It is. I love that. Okay. Well, we're, we're talking about a book. So the next question is it's a book that you recommend to everyone. So I'm going to say your book, we will recommend to everyone today, but what is a book that has shifted your perspective, your philosophy, something that you maybe go back to multiple times to reread and something that when people come and ask you like, Hey, is there a book that you would recommend that I read something you like to get in the hands of other people? Ooh, oh, that's a tough question. Um, I read a lot. So I feel like the books that I read kind of fall into a lot of different categories. Um, I, okay, well, I have one on my desk right here that I've read many, many times and I give it to people to read. It's called um, Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed. Um, you might know her as the author of Wild, but she also was an advice columnist for many years. And this book is a collection of um, her letters, her advice letters. And I love this. You can see it's like full of my sticky notes because I just sometimes need to go back and get some good common sense advice from a writer who sounds like a close friend. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a really good book. Obviously, I can recommend tons of other books that are more in the vein of my um, my actual book about digital media and parenting and whatnot. Um, but this is one that I've been looking at lately, and it's uh, I've been enjoying it. Amazing! Thank you for sharing. I have not read that one. I'm going to get it. I'll put it in the in the Am Amazon cart today and and get it shipped. So thank you. I always love learning about new books. Last question before we dive into your story: a mentor or somebody in your life that has impacted you, changed the trajectory of your life? Ooh, another tough question. Um, well, there's a professional relationship that I developed with Lenora Skenazy, who um, many people might know as the founder of the Let Grow Foundation. She wrote a book called Free Range Kids a number of years ago, and she was dubbed America's worst mom by a number of American TV stations after she let her 11-year-old ride the New York City subway um, on his yes. own. So um, she and I have become friends. We've never actually met in person, but we've had many phone calls and many emails over the years. And she ended up writing the foreword for my book. And I would say that just reading her research and talking to her over the years has profoundly shaped um, my willingness to embrace a free range parenting philosophy with my boys. And that I think is a fundamental aspect of unplugging kids from devices, which we'll get into, I'm sure in this conversation. But I think if you take away the devices, you have to be willing to let the kids go. And Lenore um, very much inspired my, my philosophy on that. Mm, I think that's such a beautiful transition to say, okay, tell us a little bit more about your story. Cause I think your story, again, hearing about the fact that you are a parent to three kids, et cetera, will actually help really set the context into what inspired you to write the book. So just give us kind of a high level Cole's notes of who's Catherine. You talked a little bit about your childhood, but I think just string along a little bit more of your experiences. Sure. Okay. Um, 
Well, um, I started working for treehugger.com, which is an, an environmental news website based out of the States. Um, I've been a senior editor there for more than 10 years um, up until this past January. And over my time at Treehugger, I was writing a lot about the power of nature play and getting kids outside and then this free range parenting idea. And I started to realize more and more that digital media kind of played a role in inhibiting a lot of these things mm -hmm. that I was starting to believe were really important in kids' lives. At the same time, um, I was raising three boys. Um, right now they are eight, 11 and 14. They keep having birthdays and getting bigger. Um, and we had moved to a small town. And so I was starting to experiment a lot with this like outdoor play and free range parenting myself. And it just became something that I was increasingly passionate about as the kids entered the school system and were being given a lot more technological devices to do their learning on during class hours and outside of class hours, I was starting to feel alarmed and wanting to push back against that. And it became a bit of a passion project. Uh, I started writing about what I was doing to get my kids outside and people were really responding positively to the articles that I was publishing on Treehugger about this. And uh, that's when I realized that it might be time for a book. And I sold the proposal two years ago to a publisher in Canada and have spent the last, um, you know, two years writing this book and then publishing it since um, July when it came out. So it very much is a reflection of how I approach life with kids. I think that um, kids are missing out on a lot of wonderful aspects of childhood when they're allowed to spend too much time on devices. And I often tell people I'm not anti-tech. I really love digital media and technology and all the things that my laptop and my smartphone enable me to do, but I have serious concerns about what is lost when we allow it to take over every aspect of someone's life. Mm, let's talk more about that. I, I want to do kind of two things here. Let's one, define what it means to be a free range kid. Because if somebody's listening in, they might hear that language. They might make assumptions on their on their own terms. But I'm curious for you, when you say that word, what does it really mean? What is What is the energy behind the intent behind a free range kid? So intent is probably the better th way to think of it there. So there's no really strict definition of what a free range kid is because every family is going to come at it at a different um, level of comfort based on where they live and their children's ages and the things that they've taught them to do. It's basically recognizing that kids have the ability to do more things and be more independent than we often give them credit for. We live in a culture that tends to infantilize children and does not really believe in their inherent ability to achieve things and often coddles them. Um, to an extreme, you know, this perception of safetyism has really grown in American and Canadian culture in the last few decades. And it is, I mean, it's sometimes known as helicopter parenting as well, but we're finding that this can be linked to increasing anxiety rates in children. And, you know, these kids are anxious because they feel like they don't have the tools to navigate the world on their own. So free range parenting is the goal of um, giving your kids the tools to navigate the real world and not always need parental supervision to do so. I love that. That's really helpful to just kind of understand that as a set term of like, what are we talking about here? And then let's pull a little bit more at this philosophy around um, kind of this perceived notion that you're either all into tech or not into tech at all. So the anti-tech kind of movement, uh, you know, I would say in full transparency, I have six-year-old twin girls. We have used tech in our house. Tech is definitely a part of our our day-to-day -day, um, in some way, shapes and form. And then I have others in my family who I would say are kind of on the extreme others where tech is not a part of their family. And there's almost been, um, that's become known. And it's, it's a conversation that we've had a lot. So when you talk about kind of this definition of, Hey, I'm not anti-tech. I understand that tech can actually enable in some way, shapes or forms. 
What is that then? How do we then think about the anti-tech when it comes to children or the idea of how much is the right amount and where does it cross the line? Like that's a lot of the times where I'm, I'm having conversations with parents and there's just an unknown or an uncomfortability around that. Yes. There's a lot to unpack there. I know. (laughs) So with tech, I like to, um, I like to think of it as either amplifying or amputating your life. Mm. And there's a section of my book that talks about this, where um, technology has the potential to expand a child's world dramatically, as well as a parent's, but we're mostly looking at kids here. Um, and it can be a wonderful, powerful, positive tool in a child's life. Um, one example I give of tech amplifying one of my kids' lives was when he was able to take music lessons on Zoom during uh, the pandemic. And he really enjoyed his music lessons. And if we hadn't had that technology, he would not have been able to do it. But a way in which technology amputates a child's life is when it's actually blocking that kid from experiencing really rich in-person interactions with people around them or the outside world. Um, You know, it's when it isolates them, when it keeps them in their rooms, when it keeps them from having face-to-face conversations about tough things, when it exposes them to content that's deeply disturbing or just too mature for them. So I think it's up to the parent to constantly be weighing whether or not um, the use of that device is improving the child's world and um, or, or affecting it negatively. That being said, I don't think that every kind of interaction with technology needs to be considered you know, productive or um, beneficial. Like, I think that sometimes it's okay just to have that downtime. And, you know, if it's a rainy day or the parent needs a break and the kid just needs to watch a movie, that's understandable. But many of the experts that I talked to said that should be saved for rainy days, literally. You know, it should not be something that's expected on a daily basis. It should be a special treat. And that's how we treat it in our family. So we have technology. We have multiple computers in the house. Um, My husband and I both have smartphones, but our kids don't have iPads. Um, They don't have phones of their own. Um, They don't have computers of their own. So they do have to ask permission um, to log in if they're going to watch something on Netflix. And when they get to watch movies, which is probably, you know, a few times a month, um, more in the winter, less in the summer, they're really excited to do it. And uh, it's a special bonding occasion for them or for the whole family if we do it together. I love that. You know, it's interesting when you think about we're relatively the same age in our, in our, I'm in my late thirties, I'm sure you're in your mid thirties, but we're in our thirties. And I think about my childhood and specifically my summers here locally in Southampton, which for my parents just felt like a safe haven where we were allowed to explore more and we were able to get on our bikes. And there was a lot of days where we would leave with a tennis racket on our back at eight in the morning and we would come home at dinner. And my mom would ask the question of like, Oh, what house did you end up at today for lunch? And that was all okay. And we would explore and play sports and go to the beach and all sorts of different things. And, you know, it's interesting to think back to that of just the creativity that you as a child have to tap into to keep yourself entertained and, and frankly, just play. So I can see the correlation between my childhood and what I'm seeing today in society and how those things are vastly different. And I'm curious for you, when you talk about free range or, you know, thinking about how tech can either enhance or inhibit your, your childhood, is that what we're talking about here? Is it like, how do we just give the kids permission to be creative and play and be fully embraced into the outside world? Yes. That's, that's a good intro to this because I think this is, this is what I've experienced as a parent 
and um, as a professional researching this topic for many years. But when you remove the sources of distraction from children, they become so capable of imaginary play, of creative endeavors, of adventure, of connecting with other kids and going and doing those things that you and I remember doing from when we were young because we didn't have those devices in our pockets. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that parents need to really realize kids have not changed fundamentally from the time that we were kids and our parents were kids to our children nowadays. They're still, you know, fundamentally capable of all the things that we were too. Um, it's just that they have immediate gratification and distraction available on levels that we never had. And so you can't really blame them for just going down those virtual rabbit holes to entertain themselves as soon as they um, feel the slightest inkling of boredom or distraction or whatever it may be. So what I have learned is that if you remove those devices from sight, like if the kid knows that there's no possibility of even, you know, touching that iPad for another few days or whatever, the um, when they can't anticipate those dopamine surges that happen, because we know that there's a whole physiological response going on with these devices as well, the kids will find things to do. And boredom will turn into a re richly creative state that we know um, is really important for kids. So I think when you take away these devices, you can then have the potential to develop new hobbies and interests and skills. And the kids will, you know, leave the house eventually on their bicycles and go for a ride. And then they'll end up at the town pond and they'll meet some friends and then they'll try to go fishing. And then like my kids come home with just these wild adventures that they've had. And similar to what you described, moving from house to house to house as they discover playmates throughout the town. So these things do happen once you uh, create the right environment for it to occur. Mm, I love that. Let's talk about boredom a little bit. I think it's something that a lot of parents, at least in conversations I've had, you know, it's been something that's been talked about. So example, um, especially over the pandemic, when parents were trying to work from home, they had kids at home who also had to be on devices to go to school, et cetera. You'd hear a lot of the times, Hey, I just need two hours to be on these calls or get things done. And so the, you know, I'm going to put it in quotes, but the easier answer was to hand a device over or to say, watch a movie or to sit here and, and, and look at a screen. I think there was fear of if I don't give them something to do, quote unquote, something to do, they'll get bored. And then what, right? Is it going to be knock on the office door every time that they get bored or how do we how do we actually allow kids to be bored and therefore get to that state where they can get to a creative outlay? How, what, what advice would you give to parents who are listening who shy away from boredom in their kids? Good question. I don't think that the pandemic is the best point of comparison. Fair enough. Let's go back. Let's, let's leave the pandemic behind and go forward. An extreme situation for many of us and one that I think we're quite happy to leave behind. I do think that it um, set precedents for device use that we're still fighting against. Um, you know, it created a lot of habits in families that parents are not particularly happy about and that kids are now accustomed to. Mm -hmm. So I think more important than ever is this, um, this time to push back. So I do tell parents that you can't just take away the devices and expect the kids to know what to do. That's not fair. You know, kids need to learn how to play independently and many kids have not because they've been reliant on these devices for so many years. And so you do have a responsibility as a parent to teach your kid how to entertain themselves. Um, and once you give them those tools, then they will be set to go. You know, the older they get, they'll be more and more independent and more capable of um, self-entertainment. So I tell parents to fill their homes um, indoors and out as much as they can with loose parts, which are um, open-ended toys that don't necessarily have a single use, but things that kids can build with and imagine new things with and, you know, transform into all kinds of different 
implements and cool, cool toys. So um, loose parts, I mean, you could create outside a mud kitchen, you could put up like slack lines, you could put up a trampoline, you can give them buckets of sticks and like building materials to make a fort. You know, my kids have built um, ramps for their skateboards and their scooters to practice tricks on. We spend money on used sporting gear. It doesn't have to be expensive. This is stuff that you can source secondhand or at um, on Facebook marketplace or things, you know, um, basketball nets and um, just lots of different things to keep kids entertained and then invite kids over counterintuitively. The more kids you have in your home, the more distracted and entertained your own children will be, which is really cool. You have to put in time as a parent too, to take them places. I found that when they were younger, you know, it would be easy to just put a movie on to make them, you know, leave me alone for an hour, but I could also take them to the park or I could go for a walk or we could go for a family bike ride. And that always took effort. You know, it, it required me to really, be a present mom, which was sometimes exhausting, but it made a difference because it establishes habits and norms that those kids then continue to carry on throughout their lives. So they know that as a family, we would go for bike rides a lot when they were younger. And now they go on bike rides on their own, which is really fantastic. Mm -hmm. So there are ways to just um, set them up for success. And I do believe that removing the devices is the first step because as long as the kids have access to those unlimitedly, then um, it will continue to um, draw them in. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing. I'm curious, uh, we talked a lot about, let's call it the role of the parent. And, and I know this will also extend to be part of the part of the parental role, but let's say we've had some bad habits in our house and we want to make this shift or this change. What conversations are you kind of co-creating together with your spouse, but more importantly, what conversations are you having with your children? Because this is change. Like how do we, how do we, as parents, set them up for success to know that change is coming as well? Good question. Um, so I have two thoughts to that. I mean, first of all, I would say it is never too late to revisit the habits in your family. So a lot of parents come to me and say, I think it's too late. You know, we've they're too far gone. They've been on the devices for too long. I don't know how we're going to change our culture in our home. And I say it is never too late. You as the parent have the right to revisit this based on new knowledge that you have learned. And you can sit down and you can explain to an older kid, especially, and say, based on what I now know, I'm no longer comfortable with you spending this much time in your device each day. This is why you don't have to like it. I think that the job of the parent is to do what they know to be best for the kid, not necessarily what the kid wants or even what everyone else is doing. That mm -hmm. goes against certain you know, people's parenting philosophies, but I believe it really sets the kid up for success ultimately. And that child will respect you for it um, when the time comes. The other component um, I would say is the parental example. So you have to model the kind of behavior that you want from your kid and you have to hold up your part of the bargain. Like you can't tell your kid not to be on their device then you and your partner are on your devices all the time. So um, definitely modeling is, I mean, in every aspect, not just in um, digital media, it's the most powerful parenting tool we have because no matter what you say, unless you're doing it, your kid's never gonna take you seriously. So I think as a parent, get off your device, also develop offline hobbies and interests so that your kid sees that life is exciting and meaningful offline. And yeah, just keep talking to your kids about it. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation for everybody. There is, um, we don't have the luxury of um, hindsight. You know, we didn't grow up with these devices the way that our kids are growing up with them. So we can't look back and say, oh, that was a stage I passed through and now I'm here and I know things are going to be the way they are. What we are, interestingly, I think is a link to a former world where we were not on our devices all the time. So that is wisdom, you know, that can be applied to your kid's life and you have every right to say, 
I want you to have an aspect of that in your life. I want you to be unplugged. I want you to be free. I want you to be playing physically and imaginatively off your device. So um, yeah, as a parent, it is, it's ongoing. You can revisit things and you can mm-hmm. talk about that with your teens for sure. I love that. I love that. Let's talk about some of the research. Cause this, this book was filled with some, like you brought a lot of different research philosophies perspective. I've seen you share a lot of, uh, a lot of deep research and knowledge that's now coming to the forefront or seems to be at least talked about more regularly in media. So I'm curious for you, what are some of the like big insights that came out of doing the research for this book? Well, there's so much, there's a lot of research in the book for sure, because I, I wanted it to be a thoroughly researched investigative sort of journalistic approach that was blended with personal experience and other family stories as well. So um, that's something I'm definitely interested in. I think one of the most powerful statistics that I've come across so far is the latest numbers on actual screen time averages. So mm-hmm. Common Sense Media is a nonprofit organization that assesses this annually. And the latest findings are that Kids between the age of eight and 12 are spending on average five and a half hours a day on devices and kids between 13 and 18 are spending eight hours and 40 minutes a day on their devices. Now, this is outside of school hours. So when you think about it, that is more time than they're spending in school. And this is probably more time than they're sleeping as well. And that is on their devices, five and a half to eight hours and 40 minutes on average. That is huge. I mean, I don't, there's a good chance that some of that time is being spent in productive ways, but I think it's next to impossible to argue that all of it is. And my biggest issue with that is this question of displacement of time. I mean, you're simply missing out on so many other formative activities. If you're spending that much time on your device, you're just, you're not talking to people. You're not helping out around the house. You're probably not studying. You're probably not focusing. You're not exercising. You're not sleeping. You're just, you're, you're missing out on a lot. So I think that that's, that's a statistic that parents would do well to imprint on their brains a bit. Another really profound stat that I think about often was a new study that just came out. I didn't even put this one in my book because um, it just came out this year, but a study of 28,000 young people um, done by Sapien Labs um, found that the age at which a child receives their smartphone has a profound outcome on their mental health. And so the younger they are when they receive their first phone, the more likely they are to have Uh, mental health challenges going forward. And the reason for this, the researchers said, was from lack of face-to-face interactions with family and friends. So they feel that the devices are displacing up to 2,000 hours a year of face-to-face conversations. So that, again, is just this huge loss of something that's really important for us as humans. And it's really sad. I'm so curious. So you have a 14 year old son and you're in this stage of life. I can imagine I'm not there yet. So I'm learning from your, your lead, but I can imagine that there's some societal pressures or some peer pressure for what's actually happening in the system today. My husband and I have had lots of conversations about smartphones and when they're getting in the hands of, and it's something that although there is tech in our house, it's something we've really talked about around wanting to delay that for, for our children for multiple reasons. And I'm curious for you, you're, you're likely coming up against that friction where there could be friends or peers or things happening in society that are suggesting that a 14 year old should quote unquote, have a phone. How are you navigating that as a parent yourself? 
Well, there's always friction living with a 14-year-old boy, as I'm sure some listeners know. Um, you're right. He does not have a phone yet. And he's the only kid in his class at the end of grade eight last year in June, he was the only kid in his class without a phone. And that was hard when he started grade eight, there were three kids without them. And then by the end, he was the only one. So he does not appreciate that. He wants a phone. He thinks it's ridiculous that he doesn't have a phone and we keep talking about it. I explained to him that I just don't feel that the benefits outweigh the negatives based on our personal situation. Like we live close to his school. We're in a small town. He can easily swing by and tell me where he going or who he's with. Um, or I don't really need to know because we are sort of a free range family. I trust him to take care of himself and get a message to me if he needs to. So it's an ongoing conversation. Um, what has been really influential to me is the number of parents who've come up to me in recent years and told me that they regret giving their teenagers phones when they did. Mm -hmm. And these are parents who waited to grade eight, grade nine, some even in grade 10, two moms gave their son's kids in grade 10. And they both told me that if they could go back in time and do it again, they would have delayed for longer. And that made a huge impression on me. There's parents who say they, they fear they've ruined their kids, that the day they gave them their phones was the worst day of their lives. And, you know, these might sound kind of dire and dramatic, but it's coming from all sides and it's very surprising and it validates a lot of the research that I've done. So I don't make promises to my son. Um, I don't know when he's going to get his first phone. One interesting piece of advice, though, that comes from Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a big piece in The Atlantic this summer on, on the topic of smartphones in schools, was why are we giving kids the most powerful technology that exists for their first phone? You know, it's it's appropriate to give a child a much simpler device if all you really need to do is talk and text with them. Um, as for social media, advice that I've read is when they're of legal age to have a social media account, have them access it just on a desktop computer so that they're still connected with their peers and their social networks, but they're having to log in at home to check it once a day or a few times a week instead of having it in their pocket. Because the real issue with these social media apps is really just how accessible they are and the fact that the kids are on them almost constantly um, because they're right there in their hands. So as long as you can just sort of um, think about accessibility, it can make it a little bit more um, healthy and balanced for that kid. Yeah, gosh, that makes, I mean, it just resonates with me deeply. And I, I think about even our, again, our life, right? Like I had a cell phone, I believe when I was in grade 11, it was a flip phone. And the only thing I used it for was to call my dad to pick me up from work when I was done. And that was the only intent behind having the cell phone. Now today, to your point with just what, you know, these lovely devices can do, you just have access to so many things. And that's uh, a lot of, I would say where, where my fear comes from when I think about giving children cell phones that have no parameters that aren't, that don't have any, um, kind of rules and regulations to how you can use them. Cause you can end up on things that you don't mean to end up on with a click of a button. It happens to me every day or I get advertisements into a social media platform because I said something out loud, like there's a lot of interconnectivity to it, you know? So it's just something that I've been navigating personally. And I always love to just hold space to have that conversation around when is the right time. And I don't know to your point, I think it's custom for all, but it's interesting. I've seen a lot of, um, I've listened to a lot of conversations around delaying it the most you can, like really thinking about it being, more of that tool for when they leave home versus having it while they're at home. So mm -hmm. while they go to college or university or start work or whatever that looks like at that transitionary stage. Yeah. 
I think too, that parents need to think about surveillance because a lot of parents are using these devices in order to be able to track their kids. And that's a whole other kettle of fish. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally take issue with parental surveillance. I think that it, um, the research I've done at least has shown that it prevents teens in particular from individuating from their parents and developing independent paths in the way that they're naturally supposed to do at that age. Um, and when a parent knows they're, or when a child knows they're being tracked, they're also more inclined to take risks because they know that their parent is watching and can show up and rescue them if need be. Other studies in Europe have found that teens who are tracked by their parents are less likely to talk to their parents about challenges in their lives and more likely to hide certain, you know, illegal or really unhealthy behaviors mm -hmm. from their parents because they are sort of trying to differentiate from their parents and get that independence that they crave. So um, I do think that parents need to think about dangers posed by phones. Um, I think that when you depend on a phone as a lifeline between the parent and the child, you fail to think about what could go wrong. Like if that phone um, runs out of battery or falls in a puddle or something, you know, if your kid does not have those real life skills to navigate the world well, um, that could cause even more problems. What you said before, though, I think is also another big issue, this question of what kids are being exposed to online. And when a parent just hands over a device like that, that's a portal to a world of, you know, a lot of ugliness and there's no context provided and there's no um, forum for discussion or reflection on what that kid is seeing, it can cause some real distress to that child. So I think that that's partly what I aim for with my own kids. Like mm -hmm. we talk about the world, like we talk about the news, we talk about ugly horrible mean things, but it's always sort of within this safe haven of conversation where they can ask me questions and I will address them all. So we do have a rule. Like if they hear something at school, I say, please don't Google it. Just come home and ask me. And I will literally tell you whatever it is you need to know that I think that you need to know about this topic. And it has led to some very interesting conversations for sure. I remember a few. I remember you sharing a few. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really helpful to hear kind of your perspective as well. And you know, I'm curious because I see, so I've also seen on the other end of the spectrum, this debate come forward. I'm an entrepreneur. I run my business from a laptop at home. This is how I create my livelihood, et cetera. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are in the space of tech that believe that having, getting their kids on tech early is actually going to benefit them from in the future, benefit their skill set development. If they're playing with something like AI, like chat GPT and, you know, leveraging that to support them when they're thinking about research for a paper at school, as an example. So I hear a lot of debates on how tech is future and how do we allow kids to learn it and use it for good. And that may be a part of this conversation back to, is it, in, is it supporting your life or is it actually derailing you from, from the goodness of life? I'm curious when you hear that edge, because there's kind of a second edge of what people are talking about, how do you how do you hold space for that conversation where people just feel so strongly that tech is future and therefore their kids need access to it at such an early age? Well, some food for thought. Is tech the future? There are some people who are arguing that the future is analog. You know, there's a really good book by that title that just came out from a Canadian investigative journalist named David Sachs this year. And he argues that COVID gave us the digital future that we were promised for so many decades. And when it arrived, we all hated it. Um, we quickly realized that, you know, having a pseudo magical device on our wall that allowed us to have meetings and order food and do exercise and socialize and be entertained was actually soul crushing and depressing. And that as soon as we didn't have to do it anymore, 
we all started seeking out um, analog versions of these activities, also known as sort of returning to a previous life. So I think that that's something worth considering. I think we know more than ever the value of in-person interactions than we did before. Um, so I often think of that. Of course, technology is not going anywhere. Um, it does play an important role in our lives. But I do push back against that notion that kids need to be taught how to use it from a very young age. Um, technology is evolving so quickly that the I, the products that they are learning to use in you know grades two, three, four are not the products that they're going to be using when they're adults, when they're our age. Um, they'll probably hardly resemble what we are using. Um, so I think that all of these technologies are also designed to be highly intuitive. You and I both learned how to use them very well late in age, later in life. And I think that kids are going to be the same way. So they have plenty of exposure. I believe they have sufficient exposure. I think what's lacking is not their technological training and education, but training in, um, face-to-face -face conversation and like physical movement and creative thinking and, you know, just like real life skills that I think are going to be more and more in demand as technology evolves and becomes more complex. Mm. Well, philosophical question for you, just to pick your brain a little bit. If we continue down the path that we're on in a societal way, so if we continue to get, get devices in hands at an earlier stage, have five to eight hours per day where people are leveraging devices to fill kind of the boredom or the time, where does this lead us to? Like, what is your fear of from for us as humanity, for the children who are going to eventually be in our seats as the adults? What are some of your fears for the future if we keep this up? That is a question no one has asked me before. Mm -hmm. And I can't say I've really thought about it in great depth, but it's an excellent one. I think that I would fear for empathy because we know that the more time kids spend on devices, the less empathetic they are. And I would fear for well-being because I do not see these devices truly making kids feel good about themselves. We know they don't. Um, you know, it's a bit of a fallacy, this idea that they connect people. Rather, they're really isolating people more than ever. And we this is this is bearing out in a lot of the recent statistics on loneliness and social isolation, particularly among teenage girls. They're, you know, the hardest hit demographic. Um, we know that when devices are taken away from teens um, for five days, um, their rates of empathy and compassion and their ability to read facial cues skyrockets and their self-reports of happiness and joy and contentment all skyrocket as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that if we continue to go down this path, we risk having a population that cares less for each other. And that doesn't bode well for, um, you know, world peace <laughs> and democracy. I think that too much time on these devices certainly fuels a lot of anger um, and politically, individually. I just don't think that it makes us better people. So I think that um, we understand each other better when we get off them. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's too big a sacrifice to make. And I think that we need to get off the devices for that reason. I would say that that's yes in children and in adults as well. You know, I, a lot of the times Brooks and I will go through these like weekends of just completely getting off devices, right. And, and putting the devices down and the conversations we have and the energy we have and the exploration that shows up just for us as adults and within, within our family unit is profound. And, you know, we can get into these cycles of, of forgetting to do it because it's so easily accessible. It's, you know, in our bedrooms at night, it's the first things we look at a lot of the times in the morning, it's the last thing we're looking at at night versus, 
you know, habitual patterns of, I have memories of mom, like reading magazines and books before bed. Right. And it wasn't about television and devices. So yeah, these, these, it's interesting as we're having this conversation, conversation, having these profound memories of, yeah, this, this is important to bring back into our world, our ethos, my house. Right. So I love this conversation. That reminds me actually of the, the tech Shabbat practice, which you may have heard of the digital Sabbath. So this okay. I popularized by yeah. Tiffany Shane, who's an artist from New York city and three or four years ago, I guess she wrote a book called 24 six about how her family unplugs for 24 hours once a week. So it's every, I think Friday at sundown until Saturday at sundown. And, um, they turn off all of their devices and the entire family just has to be offline together. And I think that that's a really nice um, option for people that don't want to be offline as much during the rest of the week, who maybe need to be super plugged in for their jobs, like you, like me even. Um, so yeah, it's a good way to get kids offline and to model that parental behavior as well and have those you know family activities, those fun experiences. So we've gone through cycles of practicing that as a family together. And my littlest son loves text Shabbat days. You know, he mm-hmm. says, more time to talk to me and to read to me and do crafts with me. So it certainly um, opens doors of opportunity for an entire family and can make everyone feel like they're in it together. I love that. All right. So we know that this is a resource for many people. So we will link up the book in the show notes so everyone can get access to it. We'll definitely share it as we share this out across tech, which is always interesting when we're talking about tech and then we're sharing this the world the word about tech. Um, this is an example of tech amplifying things. Yes. Right? So yeah, good. I love that. I love that. Tell us a little bit more about other resources that you have found to be profound in your experience of learning. You've shared a couple other authors, a couple other books, but are there any other resources or tools that have really enabled you and your family? Well, lots of books for sure. I think one of the best books I've read is called Stolen Focus and it's by Johan Hari, H-A-R-I. It came out, I believe last year. So it's a pretty new book and it is just fantastic. He talks about um, how so many of us are struggling with focus and distraction and how there are 12 reasons why that is the case. And it's just, he's a great writer, um, full of great stories. So I highly recommend that book to everybody. I think it really significantly shaped my view of this. Um, Tiffany Schlein's book, of course, was really fantastic. My book has an entire bibliography at the back, so you can find resources there, as well as different organizations that are working to promote children's outdoor play. Um, trying to think what else we, we signed our kids up for forest school for a number of years, which was a really great resource as well. And it connected us with people in the community who were also kind of just wanting to give their kids a break one day a week from, um, maybe some of the very tech heavy learning that goes on in our public education system here in Ontario. Um, I do encourage parents to talk to teachers about that. You know, we can't necessarily change the entire system, but it doesn't hurt to give a little bit of pushback and to know that others are feeling the same way is a valuable message for the school board to hear. Um, But for resources, I'd say talk to your community as well. You know, we need support. You don't want to feel like the only person in your community who's trying to get your kids off devices I interviewed Richard Love for this book. He's quite a famous um, writer. He wrote Last Child in the Woods. And he um, told me that you really need to find like-minded individuals and you can build nature clubs and you can, you know, share kids and like send them camping with one family or take someone else's kids camping. Like there's always ways, especially if you live in an urban environment to set yourself up for outdoor excursions and nature adventures that your kids will really benefit from. So the more you talk about it, the more you're going to find like-minded people. I love that. I love that. If somebody reads this book and wants to get access to you, so has questions for you or 
maybe other podcasters want you on the show. What does that look like? How can people get in contact with you? Sure. Well, I am, this is the book. (laughs) Obviously you can look up the book. Um, It's available for sale anywhere that books are sold um, or at your local bookstore. I write a Substack newsletter called The Analog Family. So that is available on Substack. Obviously the website's Catherine Martinko, which is my last name, M-A-R-T-I-N-K-O dot substack.com. So you can check out my writing there and subscribe for approximately once weekly articles that I write um, that range across lots of different topics to do with parenting and philosophy and digital media, travel, food, and all the things that I love most. Um, you can also find me on Instagram and on Twitter at feisty red hair, F E I S T Y red hair. Um, that's my social media handle. So I am on all of those platforms as well as on Facebook and LinkedIn. So I'm up there if you want to find me. We will get you connected um, in all the show notes. We'll add all the details in it. I am so, so grateful to have you on the show today and just to dive into some of these topics that I've been working through myself as a parent, as an entrepreneur, as somebody who has leveraged technology to enable. Um, So it's been this big conversation that we've had in our household and you've left me with so much food for thought to take away. And for any parent that is out there or anyone that's even, you know, thinking about parenting or maybe even has nieces and nephews that are close to them, get a copy of the book. Childhood Unplugged is definitely going to give you a different perspective and help you shift your mindset around getting off devices. Catherine Martinko, so grateful for you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jackie. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll see you again, guys, on the Jackie Sewer Show. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show.